Hello, Ghost Family. Sam here, coming to you one more time. I know we just spoke a couple weeks ago, and I told you I probably wasn't going to be around these parts quite as much because of the midnight disease, which I hope that you're enjoying if you've checked it out. If you haven't, there are now three episodes available, and one of the things that might be of interest to some of you is that the first episode is with Jocelyn McKenzie, who wrote and performed the song Sick and Suffering, which we featured here on Family Ghosts a couple of times in which a bunch of you actually wrote in to say that you really, really loved. So if you'd like to hear Jocelyn speak actually at great length about the creation of that song, uh, I would encourage you to check out the first episode of The Midnight Disease. And... Today, the reason I'm stopping by is because my best friend in the world, Alan Brooks, recently started a podcast of his own called Breadcrumbs, and he interviewed me for the show. Breadcrumbs is a show about the initial clues that people get that set them on the path to the lives they lead now. Some of these are creative people. Some of them are creative entrepreneurs, and kind of everywhere in between. And Alan knows me better than just about anyone, and still we, in the space that he created, along with his producer, Adrian, who happens to be my fiancé, we were still able to discover new things about each other. And for me, it was just such an example of why podcasting is such a magic medium, because even two people who know each other well can get in the cloistered kind of holy space of the recording booth and talk notionally the way they always talk and end up in territory that they've never explored together before. And that's exactly what happened during this interview. So I'm going to play it for you now. And even if you've heard the more personal episodes that I've done on Family Ghosts, you're still going to hear a bunch of stuff in this that I've never talked about here before. And getting the chance to talk to Alan about it was such a gift. And if you respond to Alan's warmth and his genuine nature as a host, check out the rest of the episodes of Breadcrumbs. He's got a bunch of them out, and they're all conversations a lot like this one. I hope you enjoy it, and I send my very best to you all. It was a performance of Cats, and they had set up folding chairs in their backyard in front of the stage, and all the grown-ups from the neighborhood were there. At intermission, I waddled out onto the stage, wagging my little wiffle ball tail, and banging myself on the head repeatedly with the plastic shovel on the frying pans and the audience loved it we're not not a standing ovation but i just remember this sense that i had delighted these people in a way that they were not expecting and it felt so good this moment of connection with everyone who was there to see casey's production of cats was so illuminating for me and why I have not been able to let go of that feeling ever since. Welcome to Breadcrumbs, a podcast that retraces the most pivotal steps in people's lives. I'm Alan Brooks. I'm the chief creative officer at Building Momentum. We're a creative problem-solving agency. Ultimately, our show searches for how facing challenges and solving problems throughout our lives lead us towards the biggest discoveries we have about ourselves. So let's get into it. Let's start breaking bread and follow the crumbs. Okay, so what am I supposed to say about Sam Dingman? Sam is the closest thing I have in this world to a brother. He and I met when we were 13. We had that moment of clicking when you're a kid and you find your people and you start to understand what a family of choice means. And family is something that is deeply important to Sam. He is the creator, producer, host, writer of Family Ghosts, an incredible podcast about the secrets and stories that are hidden away in families. It's an incredible piece of 
of narrative, of journalism, of podcasting. It, it is an exemplar of the form. You should definitely find time to check out Family Ghosts if you haven't. But Sam is a curiosity because he's so much funnier and sillier and weirder and more bizarre than the content that he produces. The work that he does is very serious, but Sam never is. And I think that that is a really important understanding about him and his story. He goes from acting and improv and live storytelling and driving a taxi cab in New York to producing shows for Pushkin Media and John Stamos. The most insane thing, Sam could call Uncle Jesse right now and he'd answer and be glad to hear from him. So check out my conversation with Sam Dingman. If you want to tell us your story, if you want to be a part of our breadcrumbs journey, please reach out to us on social. Tell us your story. We'd love to have you on. We'd love for you to tell a friend about these conversations that we're having. And please strap in, hold on tight for this awesome conversation I have with Sam Dingman. I think I was somewhere between five to eight, but I have a very clear memory of this. So whatever that means in terms of the science of how brains work. But I grew up a couple doors down from your friend and mine, Casey Wilson, star of screen and stage. And one of the cool things about growing up down the street from Casey is that I also grew up down the street from Casey's dad, who was and I imagine still is endlessly supportive of her performative exploits, so much so that he built her a stage in their backyard. And I'm not talking about just a plank with some beams under it. This was a full proscenium thrust with painted backdrops and heavy velvet curtains that you could open and close and a backstage area, and a dressing room. And Casey did not take any of this lightly. She formed a neighborhood theater company. And thankfully, you did not have to audition if you were over at their house to hang out with Fletcher, her younger brother, which I often was, so that we could play Marble Madness. <laughs> you were in the theater company. And I was very much in awe of Casey from the first time I ever saw her. She just has this presence that anybody who's ever seen her in a movie or a TV show will know instantly. So I would, I sort of started when I would go over there notionally to play Marble Madness, drifting out into the backyard to kind of watch her rehearse with her older friends. She's two years older than me. And when I say rehearse, I very much mean rehearse. She was staging Soup to Nuts productions of Broadway musicals in the backyard. And she was working these cast members hard. We're talking choreography. We're talking working through the songs until she felt like the harmonies were correct. She was taking this very seriously. And I think she must have noticed me lurking and watching because my next memory is that it was a performance of Cats and they had set up folding chairs in their backyard in front of the stage. And all the grown-ups from the neighborhood were there. And I think I, I just had gotten so many signals that the grown-ups in the neighborhood saw Casey as, like, for real. That's a for real person with a future who has skills and talents. And I wanted a little shimmer of that shine. And I don't remember having this conversation with her I actually don't remember if she gave me permission to do this or if I just seized the day. But at intermission between acts of Cats, I went backstage. I got a wiffle bat. I put it between my legs so that it looked like I had a tail. I put a frying pan or like a plastic toy frying pan on my head. And I picked up a shovel and I waddled out onto the stage, wagging my little wiffle ball tail and banging myself on the head repeatedly with the 
plastic shovel on the frying pan so that it made a sound that in my memory rang out through the neighborhood like gong, gong, gong. In reality, it probably just sounded like thwack, thwack, thwack. And the audience loved it. They ate it up. Not, not a standing ovation, but I just remember this sense that I had delighted these people in a way that they were not expecting. And it felt so good. My self-therapeutic analysis of that is that this was a time in my life when I did not really feel seen. And that is why I think this moment of connection with everyone who was there to see Casey's production of Cats was so illuminating for me and why I have not been able to let go of that feeling. Right. So I, I met you not terribly long after that at George Washington Middle School in Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. And it quickly became apparent to me mm-hmm. that you were performative in nature. Hmm. Right. At the sixth, seventh grade, like the Jim Carrey impressions, the you were in the high school or the middle school or shows when you could be with me. Or eighth grade Miss Howard trip to the Folger Theater and your your star turn as St. Francis in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Like you were obviously already understanding your desire to be performing. Did you did you have a sense of it then, or was it just like I like doing this stuff still? What I think I knew at that time was if I am not doing my Ace Ventura impression, and if I am not then using the version of me that comes through when I do that impression, which is a version of me that is big and loud and can make people laugh in retrospect was probably utterly insufferable. But when I'm doing that version of me, people talk to me and I get invited to things. And I suddenly have a sense of community. Susan I won't say her last name, invites me to the parties at her house that, let it be said that Susan threw the coolest parties at George Washington Middle School. And if you were in the right crew, you would get a little printed out invitation that said there was going to be a get together at Susan's house, bring tapes and CDs. And that was code for there is going to be slow dancing at this party. And that means that these new feelings that you're feeling might uh, perhaps find expression were you to be invited. And I wanted that more than anything. And originally, Ace Ventura comes out, and I have had all of these feelings inside of me ever since that day on Casey's backyard stage. I have wondered how I could reliably reproduce that moment in my life and have not had the vocabulary or inspiration to do it, Ace Ventura comes out. I, one day on a whim at lunch, (laughs) do an inspired imitation of Jim Carrey in that role. And all of a sudden, people who have never spoken to me before are laughing and saying, do it again, do it again, do this scene, do this scene, now do this scene. Do, do this scene from the, in retrospective, terribly problematic Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Let's just let, let's just uh, call things out as appropriately as we should here in 2022. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not here to defend the legacy of Mr. Ventura, but rather to admit its outsized influence in my life. <laughs> Though the, the moment on Casey's stage was the first moment, That moment of doing Ace Ventura in the cafeteria was the biggest and most revelatory because I think it was (laughs) maybe a week after that that I got my first printed out invitation to a party at Susan's house. Oh, I see. So there was a correlation that between putting yourself in a position of being the subject of attention and achieving the goal that you set out for yourself. It was black and white, pre-Ace Ventura impression, It was go to school, not say anything to anyone all day, hope nobody steals my shoes in gym class, go home and make tacos with my dad and watch baseball for four hours every night, every week, to I am a man with plans. And those plans involve 
putting on a Hawaiian shirt, right. putting gel in my hair, and going and doing my Ace Ventura impression wherever people will have me, which equals a life in my mind at that time. Mm-hmm. This is the thing about the Ace Ventura impression is it opened the door and I walked into the room and and it was, you know, what we now think of thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda as the room where it happens. It was like, oh, there is a room where all the cool people are doing the cool stuff. Your suspicions were correct. You just had to figure out the password and the password turns out to be, can you feel that, buddy? The password turns out to be alrighty then. <laughs> Right. And for you, that password is, but that password is different from everybody, right? That password is, is so different and, and specific to everybody. Yours happened to be Ace Ventura, but it Mm -hmm. could have been, um, the fact that you heard Dave Matthews first, that password is different, not only for every person, but for every room you're trying to get into. And you don't always want to get into every room. Yes. And sometimes you get the password to the room and then you spend some time in the room and you realize I am not always the guy who knows this password. And I think these people are going to kick me out if I ever take off my Hawaiian shirt or if I ever take this gel out of my hair. Like if I ever be the version of myself who puts sour cream on everything and has the entire Orioles starting lineup memorized with these guys, I'm out. And what if that... Right sour cream and Orioles lineup guy is actually more true to the person that I am. And I will say what started to happen for me around 15 or 16 is I would have these moments that I have come to call dropouts in my memory where I would be in a room full of people, often with you, and you never made me feel this way, but I would all of a sudden have this sense The voice that would come up in my head is none of these people actually know you. None of these people actually know you. None of these people know you. And I would feel myself like shrinking in on myself and just wanting so desperately for somebody to turn to me and be like, Sam, wait, are you okay? Is everything all right? Like Mm -hmm. for somebody to notice that I was in the middle of a full-blown identity crisis. And I think that was because it had felt so important to me to get into this world of socialization that I was willing to kind of, you know, ride whatever horse was going to take me there. And then once I realized that I was not always the person I had become in order to get there, I, I didn't really know what to do. And, and that's a dilemma, you know, that started at 15 or 16 and that I feel like, you know, I, I have only really started to figure out how to negotiate in the last couple of years as I, as I approach 40. When you were 15, 16 and struggling with this, that's also when you and I both got really deeply involved in the high school theater program and really found that other. Yeah. So you found yet another stage. It feels like there was there were all these other like pathways and we we could talk for hours about your baseball time and like you always found your way back to a stage in one way or another can you talk about like why that why you felt that was at that time yeah absolutely i i think originally it was because i was just looking for a way to continue to get to be the shiny version of me that got me invited to things but there was a real change that happened when you and I were in 10th grade and Brave New World was the play that the high school was putting on. And because of the vagaries of how our theater program worked, 10th grade was the first year that you were eligible to perform on the stage, even though the program started in ninth grade. The other thing about our our high school theater program, which was different than a lot, I think, and <laughs> the kids were in charge. The, the inmates were running yes. the prison, 100%. Yes. The aforementioned Casey Wilson was... The the lead prisoner running that. She was the queen, the queen of the roost. <laughs> just wanted to make give that context before you kind of jump into it because I think it really gives some clarity around a lot of these activities that we're talking about and a lot of I think your formative moments were structured exclusive of adults in your in your orbit. It was so focused on the the other youths that or you. I sound like <laughs> I sound like an old person now. The other kids that you were around. This is the thing. 
there there came a moment in Brave New World where I had been cast in a very, very small role. And I was grateful for that and I was excited about it. But I realized, you know, I'm never going to get to have my big alrighty then moment doing this play. And at this point in my development, that's what the that's the reason for doing plays, right? Is so that there's a moment where everybody looks at you and you get to be the special boy. And then I got upgraded at the very last minute, right before the show was going to open, because somebody else dropped out. And like a week before the play was going to open, they gave me this huge part. And so I learned all the lines really fast. And it was so fast that I didn't even have time to get nervous about it. And I remember opening night of the play, everybody's in the green room making jokes and throwing things at each other and putting spirit gum on and doing all the stuff that you're supposed to do when you're a high school theater student. And in that moment, I I got one of my dropouts and I felt really overwhelmed. And I was had the presence of mind for some reason to excuse myself. And I went and I sat behind one of the baffolds. The curtains were still closed. So I was sitting just off stage looking out at the darkened lights over the set that was about to be revealed to the audience. And I just sat there and listened to the crowd coming in. I just started saying this mantra to myself, like opening night, opening night, opening night. And I don't know why it clicked me into this, but suddenly I had this feeling, what you're about to do is co-create a magic trick. All of these people who know you as a student at this high school are coming into this auditorium that they go into and out of every day to, you know, smoke weed and eat their lunch. And the curtains are going to open and they're all going to voluntarily sit there quietly while you and this group of people pretend that you're in Aldous Huxley's dystopian version vision of the future And nobody's going to interrupt that. We're just all going to agree that that's what we're here for. And you are a core part of that. And that is just extraordinary as, as a moment. The thing that I think was really amazing about that moment is it was for me the moment where I realized the, the, the show is not about me. I am part of this experience that we are collectively creating. And that collectively created experience, that magic trick, is, I, I was never a religious kid, but the, it, that, that's a holy thing. There's something very sacred about that. And you have to recognize your place in it and how you serve it. Oh, I, I agree completely. Yeah, like you said, it's, it's spiritual, it's magic. It's incredible. And I think something that, you know, to connect it back to the, the experience of those dropouts, I think what was powerful for me about it in that moment was the realization that this is not dependent on anyone else seeing you for what's going on inside of you. This is dependent on you understanding your place in the larger whole. It was it, it was like a galaxy brain moment of it's not about you, man. It's about it's about understanding the larger hope of this auditorium full of people and cast members and just trusting that you're going to have an ability to participate in serving that, which is very different than trying to get everybody to look at you and laugh at you or wishing that everybody would understand that you sometimes feel alone after you convince everybody to look at you and laugh at you. I think that's telling if you look back at who you become artistically mm-hmm. over the next like five to eight years, right? Because, you know, fast forward <laughs> two years when I, excuse me, co-directed right. with one Alexander Miller, because again, children were in charge of this theater program, which they shouldn't have been. The the seminal play Inherit the Wind, um, ah, yes. and you were cast as the uh, prosecuting attorney 
who is a man in his late 60s from the South. <laughs> and I think... Well, this is what this is what's great about it is uh, he's actually from Nebraska, but I did it with a southern accent because it allowed me to be bombastic. <laughs> right. But but you went full in like as as full in as an as a 17 year old high school theater kid with absolutely no formal training. Because, again, children were running the program. Right. It was just like get good at acting. And. But I think to some kids in our periphery, you would have been seen as taking yourself and taking the work too seriously. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But yeah, 100%. Probably because you were so focused on now having found both a social family and a way to achieve a feeling of now not only being a part of a whole, but also having the opportunity to be bombastic and have people look at you. Well, this is the moment of transition, I think, that happened with that show, is I found, I did all those things that you're describing. I found this voice and this physical vocabulary that felt big and charismatic and, in retrospect, again, was probably insufferable, but it felt really right to me (laughs) in the moment. And it was working. You know, we were moving our, we were moving through the rehearsals and the all the scenes in the show were, were kind of happening until there is a moment in that play where Matthew Harrison Brady, the character that I was playing, dies. There is a death scene. And every time I did it, people were laughing. And I was horrified because... It was kind of a twin realization, like, one, you brought Sam, you brought this on yourself. You spent all these years trying to get people with the express goal of getting people to laugh. That's what people <laughs> associate with your energy in this community in particular. Yep. Of course they're going to laugh, and you've you've ruined your ability to to ever do anything that is not a broad comedic role. But also I felt like this is not I owe it to this man, even though this is a fictional man, to honor the fact that even though, you know, as a person, I disagree with his point of view on evolution. Right. He was enacting this prosecution from a place of deeply held conviction and belief. And by turning his death into a mockery, I am suggesting that there is no validity to any perspective other than my own. And that was really mortifying to me. And so I remember talking to the aforementioned Allie Miller after one of these rehearsals and saying, like, Allie, you have to help me. Like, what do I do? Like, how do I how do I invest this death with something that feels that that feels real enough to people that they are captivated by it and not amused? And so I remember we worked on a couple different things. The piece of advice she gave me that that always sticks with me is she said, imagine a sense of cold temperature creeping into your body from the tips of your fingers and your toes and moving gradually towards your heart with ever-increasing speed. Which, again, for a bunch of teenagers trying to figure out how to do serious theater, that's not a bad piece of advice. (laughs) And I do remember one night in one of the performances trying that out and starting to cry as Matthew Harrison Brady went into his his final monologue. And I don't even think anybody could tell from the audience. Like, I was too far away. But I remember thinking for myself out there, like, you have just found another level of what is special about this pursuit is this fictional man's life can change your own. Well, and it becomes it becomes one of those unlocking moments that like we should have had a Sherpa explaining to us what was happening, but like emotional resonance and sense memory and all of the other stuff that goes into doing the work of acting that is getting unlocked for us at that time. On on top of like all of the other 
challenges and difficulties and traumas and excitements and highs and lows of being 17, 18 years old and getting ready to go to college, which is where I want to go now, which is something that I, I think I only just realized about you that you are a really silly person. You are silly and fun and goofy, but your work has never been that. Well, it, well that's not true. Your work has been that way in college, but professionally, <laughs> your work has never been that. And I find that really, really interesting because your work, it's almost like you're honoring something else <laughs> by not allowing that goofiness and that silliness into your professional world. And even the stuff you do for hire isn't silly, the stuff you've done for producing Snatching Sinatra or Bad With Money or anything you did when you were with Panoply, like all of the work you've done has been in pursuit of a greater truth and or injecting journalism with narrative truth and personal narrative truth. So I think I'd love to talk a little bit about how you got to that. <laughs> the one quibble I'm going to, and I don't think I realized this honestly until you asked this question, is it happened before college. It happened in Mr. Cunningham's creative writing class while we were still in high school. In Mr. Cunningham's creative writing class, I would try to, I spent the first weeks and months of that class trying to write comedy. I would try to write funny stories. The Adventures of Mr. Peabody, Butler slash Detective, that kind of stuff. This like really whimsical, irreverent, in my mind, fun, delightful, faulty towers inspired comedy. And I would read it for the class and if someone didn't laugh, I mean, not to overuse this phrase dropout, but it would become more than a dropout. All of a sudden I would feel completely alone in the universe. Like here I am, I, I put it all on the line with this thing I wrote to try to get you to laugh and you didn't laugh. It is therefore worthless and I am therefore worthless. And on some level I think I realized, well, all you ever were trying to do with this was get people to laugh. You weren't actually trying to say anything that's true. You weren't trying to express something that hasn't otherwise been impressed. At, at best, what you were trying to do was write something in a style that you've seen make people laugh before in hopes that you could reproduce that laugh. And then one night, I had an assignment due, and... I think I was even behind on the deadline and, and had to do it kind of fast. And I had started working at Ben and Jerry's in, in our hometown. Slinging those scoops. Was sl As we say in the trade, slinging them scoops. And I had repeatedly had this experience of going to Ben and Jerry's and putting on the tie-dyed shirt and the jughead hat that they made you wear and standing behind the counter scooping ice cream working on Friday and Saturday nights when people you and I knew were coming in drunk and stoned and with all their friends. And there's this whole ridiculous pantomime that happens where they're like, Sam, how's it going? And I'm like, what's going on? But bringing that Susan's party energy in and I wasn't a part of it anymore because I had to work. And I would see this look kind of pass between them and me when I would ask them if they wanted their fish food in a waffle cone. And it was just this deep sense of like, we're not the same. We are different. I am a person who has friends on Friday and Saturday night. You're the guy that serves me my ice cream. At least that's how it felt at the time. This is like Man. social distancing based on status, not based on uh, perceived <laughs> Perceived internal status. Perceived internal status. But I just wrote about that experience that I call I called it six feet from it all. Wow. And deep because I felt like, you know, there were usually about six feet between me on the other right. side of the counter to the people in the line. I was social distancing before it was cool. I remember when I finished writing it, how good it felt to get that sort of ineffable sensation that I had been having on a regular basis down on paper. 
that in and of itself self felt good. It felt like I had really communicated and conveyed something. I remember showing this essay slash vignette to my dad. I always showed him everything that I wrote. And he got like really, really quiet. And then he looked at me and he was like, this is the best thing you've ever written. And I was like, what? And he was like, I, I remember him saying, I feel like I'm there with you. I had no idea that that's what it was like for you to work there. And as I read this, I feel like I'm behind the counter with you. I feel like I can smell the waffle cones. And I, and I, I think you should do more of this. And my dad, who is, and I appreciate this about him, sort of parsimonious with the compliments. <laughs> He's not somebody to be like, everything you do is great. Mm. So that piece was qualitatively much more serious than anything else that I had done. I wasn't trying to be funny. And I guess instead of serious, I would just say earnest yeah, and sincere. Sure. And I remember in class, as everybody was like, this is great, Sam. Like, why haven't you been writing like this all along? People had all these questions, but they, they just had this really strong response to it. And I remember feeling like this is what it feels like to, to write something that actually connects with people and isn't just soliciting one kind of response. This is what a connection feels like. A laugh is one kind of connection, but it's not the only kind of connection. And so that, I think, was an early clue to me that it was like, you know, stop trying to get people's attention by being the flashiest, shiniest boy. Just try to somehow convey the truth of what's happening for you. Why haven't you been writing like this all along? So that was a real pivot point to me that was a sign I felt that it was really important to have sincerity as an anchor rather than trying to make people laugh as an anchor. So it kind of broadened it broadened the capacity for your understanding of how art impacts and how we how we make those connections through the work. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so I think then, you know, it took me a few years and some stumbles along the way of going back into comedy once I got to New York and stuff like that, but I think the reason I ultimately circled back around to this is because what I think people actually fundamentally really connect with is when you're saying something with your work, whatever your work is, that they feel very deeply but have not been able to find a way to express for themselves. And whether that's something about family life, whether that's something about romance, whether that's something about politics, whether that's something about addiction, whatever it is, if you can find a way of doing that, and the tone of it might be comedic or it might be serious, but that's that's when you really form some kind of bond with people. And the thing is, for me, comedy is like a gear that I have available to me, but I also feel like I know that when I'm trying to make people laugh, what I'm trying to be liked. I'm not actually trying to make a connection with somebody. And I don't like the version of me that just wants to be invited to the party all the time. Sometimes, you know, that's necessary for like social survival as an adult, but it's not who I want to be every day. I think that's telling both about like the way that you engage with your art now. Like, I, I wonder if you're the exception of the rule in that scenario, right? Like, I think a lot of people find themselves as performers or as storytellers or as writers that when you meet them in person, you're like, wait a second, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the silly person I see before me, but when people meet you, I think they're going to be like, wait, why are you so, you're so much sillier than any of the stuff that you make would present. Not to say that you're not contemplative and, and serious and, and straightforward and honest. No, 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 no. I mean, I have, I think it's two things, right? It's one, it's reflective of the way that I, tr in my life, have historically tried to use 
comedy as a social passport. So in mm. an interaction mm-hmm. with a person, that is always what I'm going to try to do. And even more than that, if we think in archetypes, the comedic character that I have always by default taken on because it has been a more effective social passport is a low status character, right? So that's what I've always thought in my head. I don't know if it's come across that way, but I have always been like the person who's like, whoa, man, uh, well, these these beers sure are cold or, you know. I think that you tend to find yourself on and and this is it's been a long time since you and I were like hanging out in a social scenario with like at a party but like I always felt like you were more of a performer than necessarily low status but maybe you interpreted it as well I am putting myself on display to be laughed at thus I am exactly in my brain at least there was a default assumption that I'm not going to say something to these people that is going to make them think I'm really insightful and they hate the way I look. So if I am a buffoon who says funny things or makes light of my own presence in a space, that will be charming to them. So there, because the truth about me is an anchor that never moves, right? Like that's always there. I always have touch point with that. Whereas humor is this constantly floating buoy in a you know, an ocean that has various tides. And I think you can draw a line from that awareness of the kind of two-pronged power of sincerity to something like Family Ghosts, which is a (laughs) deeply unfunny project. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's interesting. I I don't know if I would... It might be deeply unfunny, funny, but I wouldn't call it humorless. Yeah. Right. I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, and and that's to say that like, obviously some of the, the pieces on there about Holocaust surviving grandmothers are tend to not be very funny, but that story <laughs> has a lot of humor in it. And there's a lot of joy and a lot of sincerity in that yes. story. And I think that that's really interesting because when you were in, so you, you go from being this discoverer of your your sincerity on on the written on the page through to through university where you were pursuing performance pursuing theater and acting but also doing a ton of creation of really silly very goofy radio shows that were like full on Ionesco level absurdist yeah. pieces it feels as if you kind of like swung as far as you could to either end of the spectrum through the work that you did to to finally come back once you were established in New York to like sincere, human, experience-based storytelling, either in the work that you've done or the work that you present now, yeah. or rather the stories you present now, that allows for the kind of breadth of human experience that includes humor to one level and tragedy on the other, but that like none of it is just one or the other. Well, thank you. But then after college, you move to New York and you find yourself, you find yourself in the like improv, a sketch and storytelling community in New York. Right. So how did that happen? Cause that kind of was the moment I think where You kind of like we're going towards this one thing and then, oh, there's a whole other world in which I can both gain validation as a performer and be able to be my authentic self on stage. Something that you struggle with your entire life and finally found a way to do in a real way that benefited you. So I'll just say that over time, the sketch comedy and improv comedy work, I went back to that initially, honestly, because... This is somewhat craven, but it was I wasn't getting any work in theater. And with sketch and improv, you got to perform basically like right away. You got to be on a stage performing. And I thought this isn't really this still doesn't feel like the most honest representation of myself, but it's a way to be on a stage in front of people. And then over time, as I was writing with my then collaborator, our sketches just started to get 
they were still comedic, but they started to get really sincere and memoiry. We did one that was about when I was a cab driver, the conceit of the sketch was there's reality cab and fantasy cab. And in fantasy cab, it's like what I thought being a cab driver would be like. So I'm in the car and John Stewart gets in the car and he gets in the back and I say something funny about politics. And he's like, what are you doing driving this cab? Come right for the Daily Show. And then we get out of that cab and we go into reality cab. And in reality cab, what happens, and this is true, John Stewart is trying to cross the street and I'm asleep at the wheel of my cab and I almost collide with him and end his life. That's a real thing that actually happened. So that was a real life experience, you know, with a comedic device laid on top of it. But even the comedy was getting more and more sincere. So then at a certain point, my then collaborator decided we had a monthly run at this improv theater to do our sketches. We were doing one show a month. And my then collaborator decided, he was like, you know, this is too much work. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I, I don't want to continue doing this. And we had one show left on our contract. So I thought, well, I've been really enjoying writing these stories in this much more personal way. What if I just did a whole show of those? And were you aware at that time of like this live storytelling, like zeitgeist that was kind of happening? Because this must have been like, 2010, 20, 2009, yeah, something like that? this was fall of 2010. Yeah, and, like, uh, storytelling as a thing was still kind of underground-y. The moth hadn't really landed yet. It was just starting to be a thing. It existed, but it hadn't, it hadn't become the phenomenon right. that it went on to be. And I knew about it, but I was honestly too scared to go to it. But until the opportunity to do this show came along, and I have to say, just to go back to the idea of like how heartbreak and lived experience plays into this, the other reason I decided I wanted to do it is because right as my then collaborator kind of bailed on me and was like, we're not going to do our show anymore, that was my like creative lifeline, my girlfriend at the time also, uh, we broke up because she um, decided that she would rather uh, be with ladies which was her choice, but it still destroyed me. <laughs> we had been together for seven years. A lot of change all at once. Yeah, so I was in this super cracked open place, and out of that came this series of stories that I threaded together called, I called it Sam Dingman's Reasonable Doubt. And, the you know, it was just a, a show about, like, here I am, 28 years old, and I feel like, Every choice I thought was right up to this point has been wrong. And here's a bunch of stories that illustrate that. And I found the writing process of it. And I think somewhere in my mind was that Ben and Jerry's experience. Like, just put it on the page, man. Just put it on the page and, and see what happens. And it felt so therapeutic to do that. And then I remember once I put all the stories together, I was like, I have an hour-long show here. I did this thing that I have never really done since where I wrote a personal email to everybody I knew. This took me an entire day. I wrote a personal email to everybody I knew and said, please come to this show. I, I'm trying something that I feel really strongly about and I really hope you'll come. And I got there on the night of the show and it was standing room only. And... I did the show, and there's no way to say this without sounding like a twerp, but at the end of the show, the lights came up, and there were people lined up to come say hello to me afterwards with, te like, tears in their eyes. And people kept, and then afterwards at the bar, people kept pulling me outside to say, you know, that, that show made me think about this experience I had in college, and I'd never really, you know, thought about it this way before or I I I think I want to get back together with this person and I've been too scared to tell them that all this stuff it was it was a total revelation nothing like that had happened that you now saw your impact and your ability to like influence and inspire other people to share right their stories too and that it happened because I just put my truth first on a page and then into a microphone
And so that's why I, I assume that's why that first episode of Family Ghost is so focused wholly on you and your story and your family. Yeah, that I mean, it was it was because it's a permission structure, right? That's a great phrase. I've never heard that phrase before. My stated reason for myself and people who asked when I did the Family Jewels in the first season was that I wanted future collaborators to see that I wasn't just looking to exploit other people's family histories for the benefit of a great yarn, that I had been through this process myself and was willing to engage in it in an open way because I believed that it could be ultimately productive. And I I really wanted people to see that and know that so that when they came to me, they didn't feel like they were handing their story off to somebody who did not have the emotional vocabulary to be in the mess with them. But I think it also was more revelatory for me than I was prepared for it to be, which is to say I had to ask myself some really hard questions about my grandfather in the course of doing that story. I had to ask my mom a question that I had been scared to ask her for my entire life. I had to, once I discovered, it's hard to talk about this without giving away a major spoiler, but let's just say I discovered the existence of a person who it was very important that my aunt and my mom talk to. And my mom did not want to talk to this person. My aunt did want to talk to this person. And I had to have a conversation with both of them about why they did or did not want to do that and also be running a filter in my brain about how to ultimately use that conversation as content when I'm giving them the the information that I'm giving them is fundamentally disrupting their perception of their entire familial dynamic up to the moment of this conversation that we're in the moment of, which is a wild experience. And I'm not saying I did a perfect job of it, but I did it. And because of that, I think when similar moments have come up in the reporting of other stories for the show and the collaborator that I'm working with comes to me and says, this is hard. I'm able to say, I know. What are you feeling right now? What do you need? We don't have to record anything. Let's just sit with this for a second. Do you want to continue? I've been through this. Tell me what's happening for you. Which is, you know, I would like to think that's that's the way I would like to engage with anybody in my life who, who's going through something hard. That said, every once in a while, something comes up on the show that does feel like it, it takes me a day or two afterwards to recover from it. There's, there's two sp- specific instances of that. One is we had spent months and months and months reporting this story about members of a cult in the Pacific Northwest. And part of that, part of the process with that was this, the main sort of character in that story was this woman whose mom had been in the cult and she was trying to understand who her mom was at the time when she was a member of this group. And one of the key sources in revealing that information to her was this woman who had been the mom's friend when they were both in the group. So we did this very long interview with the, the mom has passed away, but the friend is still alive, is still in the cult. We did several hour conversation with her. She gave us all of this incredibly revelatory stuff. And then in the process of telling some ancillary stories from elsewhere in the cult's history, we found out that that woman who had been the mom's friend had abused a child. And so all of a sudden, there are a whole host of decisions to be made. Is it ethical to now put that woman's voice in the ears of into the podcast where anyone who might listen to it, including this child who was abused by this person, might end up hearing it and be re-traumatized by that? Do we need to now go back to this woman and confront her with these allegations? 
Is it our place to do that? Ultimately, the person who accused her of abuse said that he didn't want us to do that, so we did not do that. Um, but then that means, okay, well, now we have to take that entire sequence out of the show. Slash, it also means that we spent an entire afternoon sitting in community and having all of these warm feelings towards someone who we now know has is at least accused of doing this unbelievably heinous thing. And I remember every I, at the time I was fortunate I was making the show at a network and I had a team of producers and they all looked at me and they were like, what do we do? And I said, I have no idea. And I left the office and I went home and I lay down on the couch and I put a pillow over my head and I just like shuddered for two hours because I had no idea what to do with that. And I will say, ultimately, what we decided to do is tell the story without that accused party's voice being a part, being in the podcast. And uh, it just felt like this is between them because they don't want us to be a part of it, which is, of course, their prerogative. And that's how we solved it. But that's a situation that could have that could have created like real lasting damage in other people's lives. And we're talking about a community of people whose lives have already been damaged by virtue of their time in this cult. So everyone, so there are still things that come up that I don't know how to navigate. And in those moments, I'm grateful, you know, I have a community now of fellow journalists and narrative nonfiction artists and a therapist who I can go to with these questions and try to make the most responsible choice. But it gets gnarly. And so, like, I think I I did have this feeling at, at an early age that people feel comfortable telling me things. And I'm very grateful for that. And I would always like to be received by people in that way and understand that giving voice to these things is productive. I mean, listen, the, the family ghost's balance of, for lack of a better term, messed up stuff to, well, that's a weird story, is heavily weighted on one side. And I encourage all listeners to go subscribe right now to Family Ghosts and find out for yourself where that balance is. Well, yeah. And I do have a lot of people who have said to me, you know, I finally checked out your show. I have to tell you, I was nervous to listen to it for a long time because it's about really heavy things. I answer that with my extremely very dad joke energy elevator pitch for family ghosts. The families are real. The ghosts are metaphorical. And the truth is always relative. It's interesting how you, you look back at this kind of mosaic of experiences that you've had. And I just think it's a really interesting pathway to take because I've known you through this entire time. And I think your listeners who might be joining us from, from family ghost land might not know this part of your your story and the right like we we go on these insane journeys and we we all have these pathways that are are like in retrospect touched in these moments of change decision call it whatever but i think that that you are indicative of a person who kind of always had a north star and was always going towards that so i do have like two quick questions to wrap up with um that are that I need I need to know. So, had you not found Family Ghosts, had you not found stage storytelling, there's an alternate universe. One of these breadcrumbs you picked up a different thing. You your baseball career took off. Whatever. What is the alternate universe version of you doing now? I think probably trying to find work as like a gigging musician, like saxophone player. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay which I realize we we didn't even talk about. So we'll have to save that for the second part of our, our conversation. Yes. That's another breadcrumb audience for I th- for next time to come back to listen to part two. Maybe there's there's two answers. The other answer is I'm wearing a Patagonia vest and a pair of very expensive loafers and pulling up to a parking lot in Mountain View in a Tesla uh, and working in an, a well-paid administrative capacity at a soulless tech job. And uh, and drinking too much, but but it's very expensive Japanese whiskey. 
Well, I'm glad that that version of you is not the one that we know. Um, and then the last question is, thinking back to six, seven, eight-year-old Sam in the the neighborhood theater troupe, what does he think of about to turn 40 Sam? He's very proud. Mm. He's very proud. I There's no other way to say it. He 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 can't believe it's working. Oh. That's awesome. I can't end it any better than that. So thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I love you. I couldn't Thank you so much. I love you. Mwah. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com.